Good morning and welcome to the June 29th planning board meeting. Our first item is adoption of resolutions. Um, there, there are three this morning and we'll do them all at once. Uh, one, the first one is Strathmore Square Building 2, Site Plan 8-2023-0050. The second is the reserve at Strathmore Square Building 5, Site Plan 8 2023-0070, and the third is Strathmore Building 2 and Building 5, Fourth Conservation Plan F-2023-0150. Do I have a motion of approval? Yes, I, I have a motion to approve all the uh, three different resolutions. Should I name them? No, that's no. not necessary. Okay. Is there a second? Seconded. All in favor? Aye. 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 Um, opposed? Like, the ayes have it. Uh, three zero, um, Council, uh, Commissioner Barkley couldn't vote on this because he was not available for the, the June 22nd meeting when we, these were brought to the board. So thank you. The second item is approving a record plat. There's one, it's item number two, it's subdivision plat number Two two zero two three zero zero seven zero, 2023 0070 Chevy Chase Section 4. Do I have a motion of approval? All right. Move that we approve the plat number 2 2023 0070. Do I have a second? Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? <clears throat> uh, the ayes have it. So we're going to go to Item number three is the regulatory extension requests. There, there are three items. We'll vote on them separately. The first is Glenmont Metro Center, 8-2021-0180-8-2015-012-D and 1-2013-008-B. Regulatory extension request number five. Do I have a motion of approval? Um, I motion we approve regulatory extension requests. Um, Glenmont Metro Center, Discovery Hall, and Federal Plaza West. It, it's just uh, Glenmont Metro Center. I think we have to do the oh, we have to do them separately. Seven, yeah. Okay, yes. Glenmont Metro Center request Thank number you. five. I second it. All in favor? Aye. 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 All op any opposed? Okay. Uh, Commissioner Bartley, you're muted. If you would mind unmuting for the voting, please. You, you can vote on these. I'm sorry, Commissioner Bartley. Aye. Okay, thank you. Um, the ayes have it. The second one is Discovery Hall Regulatory Extension Request Number One. Uh, do I have a motion of approval? Uh, move that we. Uh, I un oh, good. I muted myself instead of turning myself on. Uh, recommend or uh, move that we approve the extension request of the preliminary plan number one one nine eight fifty two forty five C and site site and forest conservation plan. Right, all three. Yep. Mm -hmm. Do I have a second? Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The, the ayes have it. There are no opposed. The last one is Federal Plaza West Regulatory Extension Request Number Six. 
There's a sketch plan number three 2022-0100, preliminary plan one 2022 Do I have a motion of approval? I motion to approve the uh, extension request for Federal Plaza West. A second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes have it. Item, we're now in the item number four, uh, the roundtable discussion. Acting uh, Planning Director Stern will present the Planning Director's report. Thank you. Good morning, Commissioners. Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director. Uh, let me, I'm driving the show this time. So for my director's report, uh, I first want to um, acknowledge uh, an employee, Eric Gray, who is our travel forecasting and monitoring supervisor with our countywide planning and policy division. He is retiring effective July 1st um, and has served uh, with our department and MNCPPC for over 38 years. So he is a tremendous, tremendous resource uh, whose expertise has greatly enhanced our department's work uh, particularly regarding uh, transportation and transportation monitoring, supporting master plans and, and uh, applications, uh, regulatory applications. And uh, we will very much miss Eric. Uh, he's a great colleague um, and, uh, and again, just has a tremendous expertise that we will definitely miss. And so he's in the audience if you'd like to raise your hand or, or come up, come up front. Do you want to, why don't you go to the mic? Um, you know, when I first came here in 1984, uh, I thought that, you know, maybe I'll be here maybe five years, maybe. But, um, uh, you know, one thing that I've always valued about the department is the people. And, you know, I always tell people that I learn planning by working here. Uh, didn't learn it in school, you know, but uh, it's a good foundation, but still, it's the people and the quality of the staff. And, you know, one thing that I feel very comfort, some comfort in terms of leaving is that I think the department is going to be in really good hands after I leave, given the quality of the staff that I've, I've observed. Even though sometimes it's a little bit disconcerting because a lot of the people, I could be their father or grandfather, <laughs> but, but still, you know, it's, 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 it's all good. So, um, I, I am going to miss this place, uh, but I think that uh, I'm really looking forward to the next chapter in my life, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. So thank you. Thank you, Eric. Um, and actually, I will also just take a note to acknowledge another employee who retired recently who'd worked uh, for the planning department for over 30, 30 years, I believe 32 years, was that Kevin Leonard, he was with our communications division, one of our really very, very skilled graphic designers, um, and he's also a photographer in his spare time as well, so also just wanted to acknowledge his contributions to our department. Thank you. So I want to move on to uh, the main topic for my director's report, which is now that uh, FY24 is about to start as of July 1st, uh, we have a very robust work program um, that will be continuing some new projects, and so I wanted to give the board an overview of what is coming up uh, in this new fiscal year. 
So we have uh, several master plans that um, have already made it through the planning board process um, and are now with the county council, the rustic roads functional master plan, the amendments to the historic preservation master plan, uh, which was looking at the Edward U. Taylor School and the Wellish Dry Cleaning. Uh, you, some of you may recall uh, this just got through the Planning, Housing, and Parks Committee is now about to go to the full council. We also recently transmitted the uh, Countywide Pedestrian Master Plan as well as the Fairland and Briggs Cheney Master Plan. We are also just now beginning the planning board review process I'm sorry, actually we just wrapped up the planning board review process for the Tacoma Park Mine and Master Plan Amendment, um, and we'll be transmitting that uh, to the council. And uh, we will be uh, publicly releasing a community equity index. This is a very important project that helps to support our equity agenda uh, for planning, which you will hear a little bit about later today. For this project, uh, the board will get a presentation on July 6th, so stay tuned for that. And then we also have uh, two other master plans that are already underway, as well as other projects, the Great Seneca Plan, the University Boulevard Corridor Plan, um, as well as the Incentive Zoning Update, and two other projects, uh, the Innovative Housing Toolkit and Attainable Housing Strategies, uh, which the board will be hearing about uh, a little later in this fiscal year. So for uh, FY24, you know, in addition to those projects that are already underway, we have several projects and several new plans that are about to launch. The shared streets guidelines and bikeway branding project, those will be done through our countywide planning policy division. And then our area teams, uh, again, will continue to be very busy. We uh, will be launching the Friendship Heights Urban Design Study. We've actually done a little bit of uh, public initial public engagement um, and made some adjustments to the scope but we will be launching that very soon. Uh, we are also launching another master plan, the Clarksburg Gateway Sector Plan, which the board uh, reviewed the scope of work last week. Uh, and another new, sec uh, new master plan, the East Eastern Silver Spring Communities Plan. Um, and one interesting thing is that plan uh, will also kind of pick up part the part of University Boulevard that is past where the University Boulevard Corridor Plan uh, boundary stops. Uh, we also will be launching the next uh, quadrennial update to the growth and infrastructure policy, uh, which you uh, heard a bit about last week. Um, and in addition, um, we are going to do some initial internal work looking at how to uh, develop a, a whole system of uh, tracking implementation metrics for Thrive Montgomery 2050. You may recall, or if you've Right through the plan, um, all of the policy chapters have a series of recommended metrics uh, that for us to use to implement, uh, to track its implementation. And so with this effort, we want to actually build out how we're actually going to do that. We also have another study underway, uh, um, or we'll be launching the coordinated data management study that's also related to transportation. Um, as well as an update to the master plan of highways and transit ways. That will be more of a technical update. And then the last are two projects for which uh, the county council just uh, approved funding uh, for us uh, to support the uh, consultant component of these efforts. The Germantown Employment Corridor Check-In, as well as the Randolph Road Corridor Study. Both of those projects are in areas that already have approved sector plans that have been approved a number of years ago, but there are some uh, different issues in those uh, different communities that we feel the need to go back and do a deeper dive now, see if there are some new uh, recommendations or strategies that we should be exploring. So stay tuned for that.
Could you just say what is really in, you know, just very brief, coordinated data management study, what is that? Can I ask, uh, Jason, do you want to speak to that? Jason Sartori, he's the chief of our countywide planning and policy division. Just briefly, because sure. I have no clue what that means. <laughs> sure. Actually, I was going to see if Eric wanted to uh, <laughs> to explain this as one of his last uh, opportunities to speak before the board. But I will. Uh, it, so it is is it's an effort that we're working on with the state highway administration and uh, the local uh, DOT to better see how we can better coordinate the data that we all access and that we use and that we each maintain. Uh, we're also looking at seeing how we can better maintain the, uh, some of the multimodal and, and crash data that we maintain in-house that we use for things like the growth and infrastructure policy. So it's, it's a pretty coordinated effort uh, with, with other agencies, but it's largely going to be um, some work sessions and understanding what types of data we each have and how we maintain it and how we can share it better. So this is just for transportation, not the other data, because there's a lot of other data that right. we can do exactly the same thing. That is a very good idea. That's actually. true. This is this is just for transportation okay. assets. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And before I move on, I wanted to make one correction for the Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment. We actually, that is just now starting the planning board review process. The board received a presentation on it, but the public hearing um, is part of the board process is, is in September. Um, and that's one where we will be holding it jointly um, or co-hosting it jointly with the city of Tacoma Park. Uh, there will be an, a satellite location where residents can also testify from there as well. We also have, uh, in addition to the master plans and other studies that I just noted, uh, several other special projects that are underway. One is the local housing targets project. This is um, a new one that we have started with the Planning, Housing, and Parks Committee under the leadership of uh, Council Member Andrew Friedson. And this is an effort to take the uh, countywide housing target that was developed back in 2019 as part of a regional housing targets effort led by the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments with all the jurisdictions in this region um, to, develop, uh, to develop new uh, updated housing targets for, for new housing production. And so there is a portion of that that is allocated to Montgomery County. Um, the county council back in 2019 approved a resolution sort of officially adopting those targets. But with this effort, we want to take it to the next level and uh, identify and um, develop more localized targets uh, based off of the, uh, there's over 20, there's about 22 planning areas throughout the county so that we can have more um, tailored housing targets that are more responsive and better reflected conditions in different parts of the county. So stay tuned uh, for that. We also are participating in the development review process work group, uh, which was launched under the uh, leadership of State Delegate Leslie Lopez. Um, and we're also coordinating with the county executive's office. There is a work group that's already started its work um, to look at some um, opportunities for uh, streamlining um, and enhancing the development review process. We also have our, we'll be continuing our Reforest Montgomery program, which will help to increase the tree canopy throughout the county. Uh, we have our, uh, our department's uh, placemaking initiative, which has been underway for a few years now. There's a photo at the bottom right 
from our uh, Fairland and Brace Cheney Placemaking Festival that we held last October. We are now uh, creating a strategic plan to look at some lessons learned from our experience doing placemaking festivals and other placemaking efforts and um, identifying uh, some um, strategic ways for us to continue this work, whether our department um, are the ones who are doing the placemaking activities or if we're working with partners. And then uh, lastly, I want to note our uh, Design Excellence Awards program, which is a um, biannual uh, awards program that we co-host with the American Institute of Architects Potomac chapter. And it very much highlights our department's design excellence um, initiative, which informs all of our work, both on the master planning side and regulatory review, to ensure that as new projects are developed in the county, we can make sure that this county gets to benefit from high quality architectural and public space design. So as part of this, we hold um, an awards ceremony that will take place in October, uh, October 19th, um, in our headquarters building in this room that we're standing in right now. And uh, all of the commissioners are very much invited uh, to attend. We will be uh, launching the call for submissions uh, very soon and have already lined up an expert uh, jury, uh, independent jury that will uh, review the applications and, and identify the winners. So stay tuned for that as well. And then uh, lastly, just wanted to say, you know, again, uh, a welcome to our new chair, Artie Harris, as well as our new commissioner, Josh Linden, and uh, continued uh, uh, appreciation for our ongoing commissioners uh, as we are launching into this new fiscal year. Again, we have a very, very robust work program, a lot of really great projects underway, and we uh, will continue to work with the board to make sure that if there's any information, anything that you uh, would like to understand more to help inform you as you make your decisions. We are very happy to continue to do that. Um, and just wanted to say that we look forward to working with you all. So thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, yep, yeah, uh, thank you for presenting this report and we get to see all your team's great work. We appreciate all your hard work and um, in this county is should be very, very appreciative of all your work and we look forward to working with you also throughout the coming year. So, uh, thank you. So, our next item is item number five, the Sligo Creek public hearing. Um, and staff will present. Uh, oh, well, okay. Sorry, we're going to pause as we um, transition to our next item. Thank you.
uh, we're back uh, to discuss item number five, uh, where the applicant has requested amendments to their preliminary and site plan. This is for the Sligo Apartments. Uh, we have staff here to uh, discuss the project. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, for the record, Katie Mencarini with Down County presenting the Sligo Apartments, which includes preliminary plan amendment 12022011A and site plan 82022017A. Today, it, staff is recommending approval with each of these applications with conditions. All right. So this property is located within the Eastern Silver Spring um, on Sligo Avenue, just about 1,000 feet east of the Central Business District boundary. The property is 1.29 acres in size and zoned CRT 0.75 with a max height of 35 feet. The site is currently occupied by a one-story, oh, by two, sorry, forgive me, two one-story commercial buildings and used for a landscaping business and a storage yard. Now, we have some previous approvals that I want to get through to provide some context. In July of 2021, the applicants submitted a concept plan for the 100% affordable housing project seeking the speed to market process. And in fact, this was our first one that we took and approved. Exciting. Um, in October of 2021, we have a ZTA 21-07, which was adopted, which um, exempts the project that proposes 100% affordable houses from FAR requirements. And then the project was designated as our speed to market, as I mentioned, on July 19, 2023. And the board approved its first application, which includes um, approvals for sketch, preliminary, and site plans. The applicant was approved to construct a 115,000 square foot building for up to 98 multifamily units. The project will be funded through LIHTC and subsequent to the restrictions expiring, 24.5% of the units will remain as MPDUs. All right. So, um, and then we're going to get here to what also was approved that we're going to talk about with the related amendment. So we had both this building and then we also had frontage improvements. So you can see here, we're really excited. Um, there's going to be a buffered side path along the north side of Sligo Avenue. It's going to start with this property, but as others develop or if we get a CIP project, it's going to continue all the way down. Um, and this will be an important link, especially towards the CBD and the future Purple Line stations. Now, here's what's happened. They did all the right things. They started going for the permit process. We had a, um, you know, a really good streetscape that we were very excited for them to install, but we hit a snag. They found a gas line, which was going to become a problem because it would be like right under the shared use path that's there on the left. And so they graciously asked um, MCDOT, MCDPS right-of-way, and planning to get together to figure out what do we want to do here instead. There's got to be a way. So we came up with some different alternatives, and we landed on the one to the right. And what we did here is we found that if we expand the lawn, lawn panel two feet into the site and capture some of that from the shared use path, we don't have to disturb the gas line. And a big reason why this is really important is that like sometimes utilities have to move, right? But like not only would the utility line along their site have to be relocated, but it would have to be relocated all the way down the street, right? That's a lot to ask of, a, of an affordable housing project. You can't just put like a kink in the gas line <laughs> and make that work. So um, we figured that this would be great um, and a couple reasons why we landed on this alternative. The first is that this meets the complete street design guide minimum requirements, okay? So we actually get a wider lawn panel than the minimum, but we still achieve the minimum for the shared use path. Um, we're still gonna be able to get a consistent streetscape down the whole way and actually, my preference would be to have a wider panel because when you have traffic that's moving really fast, that's where you want the most protection. So if it's gonna go one way, you want the panel to get a little bit larger. 
Okay. So with that, we have conditions to be amended. I have a bunch of them here. They're in the staff report. All they're really speaking to is anywhere we mention that streetscape changing or, hey, look into what utilities are going on. That's relevant to this master plan. There's nothing else going on. Um, so, uh, stormwater management is very minimal. We did work with... Um, as I mentioned before, DPS right-of-way, MCDOT. We also worked with DPS um, Stormwater and uh, Fire and Rescue. Everyone's cool with this. So with that, we recommend approval with the conditions as they're modified. Um, we've met all noticing requirements, and we have not received any feedback on this project one way or the other. So that's really it. Great. Thank you. Thank you that also this is a great affordable project in Silver Spring. Um, is there any discussion among the board on this project? Okay. Uh, hearing no discussion, do I have a motion for approval? I move to approve it. Oh, yeah, okay, well, uh, one for the preliminary plan and one for the site plan. Okay, okay, so that's for Commissioner Barkley uh, uh, moved for the preliminary plan. plan amendment one two zero two two zero one one eight. Great. Is that a second? I'll second that. All in favor? Aye. 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 So the ayes have it. Do I have a motion for the site plan approval? Move. I move to approve the site plan amendment number eight two zero two two zero one seven eight. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes have it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you on behalf of the applicant team. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you. Uh, we're back and we're going over item number six, the briefing on the equity agenda for planning and the planning staff will present that now. Thank you. So I will start Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director with the Planning Department. Um, just a quick introduction. This briefing um, is intended to uh, share with the board, particularly with our newer board members, uh, the Planning Department's equity agenda in planning. This is a uh, multi-year effort that we have had underway uh, to make sure that equity is a foundational part of our work as a department um, and also in our department operations. And so this uh, briefing will go through uh, several examples of how we've been implementing it. Um, Carrie McCarthy and I will be uh, uh, tag teaming on the presentation and so I'm going to turn it over to Carrie to get us started. Thank you. Good morning. For the record, Carrie McCarthy, Division Chief for Research and Strategic Projects. Um, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, the first slide we're showing just provides historical context for the significant um, racial and ethnic changes that have taken place in the county over the past 60 years. Um, if you think back to the 1960s when they did the original general plan, the population of the county was much smaller and also 96% white. Um, today, what we have um, is a population that's only 40, a little over 40% white, 20% Hispanic or Latino. Um, that group's grown notably in the past three decades. 18% black, 15.3% um, Asian Pacific Islander, um, and then we have a small 5.5% um, of people who identify themselves um, as another race, um, which also includes people who are multiracial. I like to think of Montgomery County as really a trendsetter or bellwether county for some of the demographic changes that are happening in the United States overall. Um, so we've gotten more diverse uh, more quickly um, ahead of a lot of the other counties in the country, um, but the rest of the United States is really quickly following us. To understand um, at a census tract level what the racial and demographic composition is, we like to use a series of maps um, we've created um, that the yellow tracks show tracks, yellow color tracks are tracks with no predominant group. So there's no single racial or ethnic group with more than 50% of the population. Um, and you see those really hug the I-270 corridor north of Rockville um, and the, the southeastern, eastern uh, quadrant of the county. Um, you know, with um, South of Olney, um, White Oak, um, Silver Spring, uh, Wheaton. Um, then we also have the dark blue tracks and the light blue tracks are areas that are still predominantly white. Uh, the green tracks are um, predominantly black. Um, with the dark green, we have a couple out in the Fairland area and White Oak tracks that are um, more than 70% of the population is black. Um, the pink, it's kind of more of a coral color or Hispanic majority, 50 to 70% of the population is Hispanic. Um, we see that around Wheaton, Aspen Hill, and then over in the Long Branch area. Um, and then we've had our first Asian majority track that's um, sort of a hot pink color um, over in North Potomac. Um, so the population is you know, very diverse and very distributed in different parts of the county. Montgomery County is also notable for the percentage of the population that is foreign born. Um, it exceeds Maryland, the Washington DC region, um, and is more than twice the United States overall. Um, and this has grown significantly uh, since 1980. Um, that year we only had 12% of the population was foreign born. Today um, in 2021 data, um, it's over, it's about a third. 
Um, so really, it's a, we have this diverse, um, multinational, global population in Montgomery County. So I will pick it up from here. Uh, I just wanted to share a bit about the context during which we were um, developing our equity agenda for planning. Um, I joined the planning department back in 2018, and as soon as I joined, I um, started working here. I joined an internal uh, working group to, uh, to think about how we could create an equity initiative for our department. Um, but there are, again, also other um, important efforts that were going on um, in the county and within the commission. Uh, the county council passed the Racial Equity and Social Justice Act in October of 2019, and as part of that law, the planning board is required to consider racial equity and social justice uh, uh, in their review of master plans, and so we needed to make sure that uh, we had uh, mechanisms and strategies in place so that the board can um, comply with that requirement. And then additionally, as an organization, uh, the commission also adopted a resolution back in June of 2020 that also you know, highlights and, and underscores that Black Lives Matter and that as an organization, we have to ensure that all people will be treated fairly and equally. Next slide. Prior to creating our equity agenda for planning, the planning department had actually already uh, conducted quite a number of other uh, earlier equitable planning efforts. Um, I mentioned our internal equity working group that was um, already underway in 2018. Um, additionally, through some of our master planning, um, we also focus on equity for the Vera's Mill corridor plan and also the Aspen Hill Vision Zero study. Uh, we also considered this as part of our bicycle master plan and Purple Line pedestrian connectivity study. And, um, and also, obviously, in a lot of our housing work as well, including our rental housing study, we also completed a preservation of affordable housing study. Um, and uh, there were also updates to county laws, for instance, to the uh, moderately priced dwelling unit law and accessory dwelling unit reform. And also, we completed a uh, retail and diverse community study back in uh, 2019 as well. And uh, if you can go back just one last thing, just also want to note it that uh, our Historic Preservation Office has very much been focused on highlighting um, the history of the county's African-American community. So this was something that we had already really been thinking about and doing through our work earlier. Next slide. And as we all know, with Thrive Montgomery 2050, our newly adopted uh, general plan, community equity is one of the three key objectives, and it is the first time that we highlighted and included um, equity intentionally as, as uh, part of our general plan. This again was our first general plan update in over 50 years, so there was a lot of catching up that we needed to do, but we made sure that equity was um, at the forefront of this effort as well. Next slide. So I want to jump into our equity agenda um, for planning in more detail. And I wanted to highlight this quote that is on the webpage for this effort, which talks about uh, developing an equity agenda for planning is ongoing and will require a constant attention to institutional racism's influence on in all planning and zoning processes. And we know 
that our profession, the land use planning profession, has very much been an active and intentional player in creating segregated communities and, and in creating other um, inequities uh, that we are still living with the results of now. And so our charge now is to make sure that we are doing everything that we can to undo a lot of those inequities, but also to make sure that we are not creating new inequities as we do uh, future planning. Next slide. So in 2020, our department created an equity agenda and planning framework um, that included an action plan. Uh, we presented this to the board um, at that time. And uh, for the action plan, it really highlights as this mission that we must incorporate racial equity and social justice when preparing master plans, um, as well as using best practices to analyze adverse impacts on a community, um, as well as doing equitable community engagement. And as part of that 2020 framework document, there were several action plans that were action items that were identified that are listed here. Uh, for instance, developing an equity lens or tool, an equity opportunity index, community equity emphasis areas, uh, mapping um, a timeline, looking at racial equity and social justice in a county, doing equity trainings for staff, uh, looking at how we can um, embed equity as part of our research and data. Obviously, equitable community engagement is very critical. Uh, creating an equity peer review group um, and also doing other uh, efforts to advance equity in our department. Next slide. So over those three years, we have done a lot to implement um, that action uh, plan. We have several ongoing efforts. We've created, I kind of call this our equity lens for master plans, and that's really kind of an umbrella term from all the different ways that we look at equity as we develop our master plans, which the board has seen some of the specific examples more recently. We also conduct quite a number of equitable community engagement strategies, and I will go through some specific examples of some of this. Uh, we have created an equity, equity peer review group that uh, continues to meet and we also mandate for every planning department employee, whether they are a planner or um, in operations, everyone is required to complete at least eight hours of equity training every year. Um, it's part of their evaluation. So we want to make sure that this, again, is part of our ethos in our department. We've also completed uh, several initiatives, our equity focus areas mapping, our trends in racial equity, racial and ethnic diversity, a GIS story map, uh, we did a neighborhood change analysis, our mapping segregation project, which the board heard about earlier this year, um, and soon the equity uh, community equity index, which the board will hear about um, on July 6th. And we also have several other efforts underway. So I'm gonna just go ahead and proceed because I am gonna share some specifics about each of those. So this is just one example of, of our uh, kind of equity lens that we apply to master plans. This slide is from the Silver Spring downtown, uh, downtown and adjacent communities plan um, that the council approved last year. And it's really kind of asking upfront a whole series of questions to make sure that we are intentional about thinking about how equity shows up in the communities where we're going to be doing planning. The first question is looking at the history of that area. Um, are there some specific um, aspects of that particular community's history that has had an impact on whether or not that community um, is equitable, has any um, in inequities that we need to address through our plan? For, the, um, for this example with downtown Silver Spring, 
that uh, master plan talks about that community's um, history with the civil rights movement and efforts to combat uh, racial discrimination in housing in that area. Again, we also you know, think about upfront, how can we do equitable engagement? For every master plan we create, before we actually officially launch it, we create a whole communications and um, engagement strategy, and we look very closely at the demographics of the residents in that area to make sure that we develop uh, equitable um, engagement strategies that can reach those residents and make sure that they are part of the process. We also look at existing conditions and also consider future um, outcomes in terms of how we can advance equity. Next slide. So as I noted, we, uh, we have multiple strategies to conduct equitable community engagement. And you know, this is really, really critical. Um, and it's something that you know, we've tried a lot of different strategies. And I think the first thing I would say is that there is no one way to do community engagement. It really is uh, very much informed by the, the uh, particular community in which we're doing a plan. So it's really, really critical to look at that demographic data to talk to uh, different community leaders to get an understanding of that community because you know one community will have sort of one particular makeup of residents another community may have a different one there may be different languages that we need to, to focus on in particular so that's why it's, you know we do a lot of upfront work before we actually launch um, our master plan so that we can hit the ground running and, and try to be effective so some of our different strategies for equitable community engagement include not only in-person meetings but virtual meetings. You know, since we are now you know operating more in person, it's sort of our standard practice. Every time we have an in-person community meeting, we also offer a virtual one as well because that's a way to get more people involved. Uh, we also have done uh, meetings in other languages. For instance, when we were doing Thrive Montgomery 2050, we did a virtual meeting back in 2020 that was in Spanish with English language translation. So I was the one who was going through the interpreter because my Spanish is very minimal. Um, and we also, for the Great Seneca Plan, uh, we held an in-person meeting uh, with a community organization that was in Chinese with English translation. We've done um, quite a number of events uh, within a community to reach people where they are uh, through pop-ups, um, participating in community events. I mentioned earlier, uh, we've done a couple of uh, placemaking festivals as well, uh, one of which helped to support a master plan that was underway, which I will uh, show in a minute. We also do a lot of uh, online questionnaires, online surveys, which is another great way to get um, ideas and feedback. We also do canvassing. We've worked with a canvassing company to go to multifamily buildings and to go directly to the residents to speak with them. Um, and again, we translate a lot of materials into other languages. Uh, we've translated uh, the um, Thrive Montgomery 2050, I think it was the public hearing draft, we translate it into Spanish, and we are actually about to publish the final laid out published version of Thrive, which was already adopted, and that will be translated into multiple languages. Uh, we also translate um, fact sheets, explainers, other information, online questionnaires, as many different documents that we need to translate into other languages if there are residents, um, a critical mass of residents who speak different languages in that community, that's something that we will do. And we also use things like bus shelter ads and yard signs, you know, again, to try to catch residents where they are. Next slide. So one example um, that uh, we've uh, done a lot of equitable engagement for um, was the 
Fairland Breaks Cheney Master Plan, which again, we recently transmitted to the council. And this is just some examples of what we did. Uh, we did a lot of canvassing in that area. We also worked uh, with a consultant to do, um, to gather community feedback through art. Um, and so that's the example at the, the uh, lower uh, right. Um, that was really kind of a great visual way to capture um, residents' feedback. We also work with a graphic recorder for all, for all of our plans, but this again was sort of a different way of, of showing what that feedback could look like. We translated materials um, into other languages. We went out to the community um, to do pop-ups, and we also had an online survey as well. Next slide. And also for the Fairland and Briggs Cheney Master Plan, we also held a placemaking festival um, in October. And uh, one of the things that was really important for this was not only to help to advance our placemaking initiative where we uh, set this up at the, um, the parking lot that is at the, uh, the uh, community center and um, uh, transit, lo transit um, look, um, the name is slipping my mind right now, but it's essentially it was an open parking lot. And so this was an effort, um, it was on county-owned land, and this was an effort to show how can we transform this area into a place where there are amenities and uh, gathering places for community members. And so this was a really great festival that took place over the weekend um, last year. But one of the things that we did was we had a booth there where we were asking residents about their ideas and feedback to inform our master plan. So this was really kind of a twofer for us. Um, but again, this is just another way that we like to try to reach residents where they are. Next slide. So I'm going to, uh, maybe I'll cover this one, Carrie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so as part, um, again, of our equitable engagement for our Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment, again, we also did canvassing here. And as part of that, um, in addition to capturing the feedback from those residents in the multifamily buildings, we also tracked uh, demographic data of the residents that we spoke through, spoke to through the canvassing to make sure that it was representative of the uh, demographics in that area. So this is just an example of how we made sure uh, to use data to check um, how effective we are in reaching those residents. Next slide. Again, uh, for the Great Seneca Plan, I mentioned we did uh, a, um, a community meeting with a Chinese American organization in order to reach those residents. Again, we have a yard sign in, uh, in Spanish that has a phone number where you can text your ideas and feedback. We went out to the community. We held our own community meeting. So again, we use multiple, multiple strategies in order to reach residents. Next slide. And again, for the University Boulevard Corridor Plan, which is currently underway, uh, we not only held in-person and virtual meetings, again, we went out to the community, we went onto the buses to actually speak with residents directly, and also um, had a meeting that took place a few weeks ago that was in Spanish, uh, again, with English translation for those who don't uh, speak Spanish well, again, to make sure that we can reach as many residents as possible. Next slide. And here are some uh, images for the uh, equitable engagement for the Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment. You know, again, I kind of explained the, the different ways, but again, we just, we like to use as many different strategies as we can uh, to make sure that everyone has a seat at the table for their um, community. Next slide. As I mentioned earlier, one of the um, action items from our 2020 framework document was creating an equity peer review group, and this group has been underway. 
uh, since then. This is an internal staff team who helps to support um, our focus on uh, applying the equity lens for master plans. They provide feedback on draft recommendations, uh, the policies being developed as part of these plans, as well as community engagement strategies. They review a lot of different materials for each of those efforts. And it is comprised of diverse staff, not only racially and ethnically, but also uh, by planning expertise. So we have staff who are master planners, transportation planners, environmental planners, researchers, um, et cetera, so that we can apply kind of an additional brain trust to help us think through um, these efforts. Next slide. So with that, I will turn it back over to Carrie. Great, thank you, Tanya. Um, this was one of our first data tools um, related to equity um, called Equity Focus Areas. Um, it came out of the work of the equity um, working group that was part of Thrive. The group felt we needed something more um, Montgomery County customized um, to look at which areas had the highest proportions of the most vulnerable populations. Um, there are other tools in the region. Um, another commonly used one is the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments Equity Focus, or excuse me, Equity Emphasis Areas. Similar names, people are <laughs> mixing them up a lot, but, um, and, but the equity focus areas, um, the data is all normalized to Montgomery County, um, so it really is more local. Um, and it looks at tracks with high population of people of color, um, high populations of low-income households, um, and high percentage of people who report that they do not speak English very well. Um, so based on those criteria, they, the analysis came up with 56 um, tracks out of 215, about 26%. Um, and the breakdown in the bullets, you know, high, more likely to have a Hispanic population, um, more likely to only have a high school diploma, lower average household income, um, lower median housing value, and a much higher percentage of households that are renter occupied. Um, you know, this analysis is helpful as a first pass because the tracks are either you're in or you're out. Um, so it helps us focus efforts on the most vulnerable population and making sure we're thinking about recommendations um, that are tailored to those needs. Um, so I'll show a couple uses of this tool. Um, it's been very well received by both planning staff and the parks department. Um, when the um, Mid-County team worked on the Corridor Forward, um, which was a transit plan for I-270, um, they used these tracks to look at equity considerations. And given that people um, you know, are more likely to ride the bus, um, you know, they wanted to make sure these areas had bus links. Um, they wanted to make sure these areas had um, more investments in um, other non-auto modes with bike lanes and pedestrian access. Um, and then the recommendation to increase the red line up to Germantown to provide um, access to this population of people. Um, and then also looked at um, you know, where the different environmental impacts, um, how these tracks were affected compared to other tracks. Um, similarly, the, the pedestrian master plan considered the equity focus areas. Um, and really interesting analysis of the roadway data. Uh, the EFAs um, only have 14% of the roadway miles, but 44% of pedestrian fatalities and severe in injuries. Um, so that really tells you that the um, roadway network and the public realm for pedestrians in these areas um, is not meeting the needs of the population. Um, this is a tool we released last year. Um, it's a GIS story map where we look at 
um, use census data to look at um, changes in each race um, and Hispanic ethnicity um, since 1990. Um, you can you know, flip through and it has the map for each um, group. Um, and then it also has the, like the map I showed at the beginning, um, the kind of no predominant race tracks. Um, so happy to send around the link for that if it's something people want to take a look at or come in and do a briefing. Um, but again, it's, you know, with, even with the data tools we found, there's no one way to um, consider equity. And so we're trying to provide um, different ways to look at the data, different cuts, um, and make this information accessible for planners and the general public. Um, this is another really fabulous study that Ben Craft um, conducted um, based on an analysis that was done by the University of Minnesota previously looking at neighborhood change. And it basically tracks changes at the census tract level in very low income populations and very high income populations. Um, so we found that, you know, tracks um, that are blue um, where there's been displacement are tracks where the low income population has declined and the high income population has increased. Um, in the inverse tracks that are pink, um, it's the opposite. The low income population has grown and the high income population has declined. Um, the green tracks that we call inclusive growth are tracks where both the low income population and the high income population have increased. Um, and we found that one, people of color are much more likely to live um, in a pink track um, where there's a low income concentration um, that really is a much more significant challenge than displacement. Um, and then we've also found, particularly around transit, we have a lot of examples, um, probably because of the MPDU program, um, where the low income population and the um, higher income population have both grown. Also in these green tracks, we found that there have been more likely to be new housing. And that's a really critical factor um, that because of these protections we have in place for affordable housing, we can have new development um, without displacement. And so happy to have Ben come back and do a, a deep dive into this if you're interested. Um, this is a study that the historic preservation team led um, that looked into the history of racial discrimination by, they actually did deed research on subdivision and identified um, subdivisions with racial covenants. Um, and so they found that, you know, 40% um, um, had racial covenants. Um, they just, as a, a manageable first pass, looked in the down county area, um, also because this area had developed before the fair housing laws were passed. Um, so this, the goal of this study was really to understand better, you know, where there had been racial discrimination um, in new housing development and bring to light what those patterns were and, and where it was located. And one of the interesting takeaways, I think, looking at this map is, you know, the pattern is pretty varied. It's kind of all over the place, Down County. So, um, yeah, discrimination was very widespread at that point. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Tanya to talk about a couple other initiatives. So the, um, the last set of uh, efforts that I want to talk about um, also is under our Historic Preservation Office. They have an, um, an Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Project, uh, which we launched to make sure that we look at the county's AAI, AAPI history, which is underrepresented in our historic sites inventories. Uh, there was one home that was owned by a Chinese American family that was listed as an outstanding resource for the Potomac Overlook Historic District, uh, which was designated, uh, I believe it was last year. Um, and we also launched a public AAPI interactive feedback map where um, anyone in the community can identify sites uh, that are important to the uh, Asian American communities and, and uh, are ones that we should 
look at for any potential you know, historic or cultural resources. Next slide. The uh, full commission at its monthly meeting uh, earlier this month uh, got a presentation on this, but I just also wanted to highlight um, our efforts to uh, lift up LGBTQ history within Montgomery County. Our department uh, worked with the Maryland uh, Historical Trust of the City of Baltimore and Preservation Maryland to support the Planting the Rainbow Flag uh, our study. This is a, uh, a publication that is an abridged version of a larger statewide context study of LGBTQ history in the state of Maryland. Um, there's also a database that contains information on over 400 sites. And uh, we also passed out uh, hundreds of copies at the uh, Capitol Pride uh, Festival earlier this month. The commission had a booth and uh, there was a lot of interest in attendees and being able to access this history. Next slide. Another effort that we have done to support um, LGBTQ history in Montgomery County uh, is to uh, do some initial efforts to list the Robert Coggin House to the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, Robert Coggin was the founder of the LGBTQ rights movement in Montgomery County and founded the Suburban Maryland Gay Alliance back in 1982. He was uh, played a critical role in securing the passage of legislation prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation. And uh, the Maryland Governor's Consulting Committee found that his home was eligible for listing to the National Register. And uh, this is actually the first suburban 20th century resource to be found eligible for LGBTQ history in Maryland. Next slide. We also have a uh, historic markers program underway and uh, we actually will be doing some installations uh, within the coming months. This is our remarkable, remarkable Montgomery Untold Stories effort that uh, we're actually doing jointly with Montgomery Parks. Uh, our department already had uh, funding to do historic markers. Parks also had some funding, and as we were starting to work on our markers, there were at least two of them that would be installed on Parks properties, and so we decided instead of having sort of two historic markers program, let's create a joint umbrella, uh, since we're all both part of the commission. And so these are uh, examples of two of the markers that will be installed soon, uh, one of which is the uh, Beltway March of 1966, uh, and the other is uh, focusing on the uh, Horad family home, uh, which I believe is on a University Boulevard. So again, these are efforts to highlight the county's diverse history, uh, whether it's for our African-American communities, there are some markers that relate to uh, women's history uh, in a county as well. Next slide. And then uh, lastly, I want to highlight an effort uh, that we initiated through the, uh, a request from the county council back in 2020, which was to, uh, it was actually to both the planning board as well as to the county executive to identify streets and public facilities that were named after Confederates or others who do not um, uphold or reflect it, uh, the county's values. And so uh, within a commission, you may or may not know, uh, the, the commission in a planning board uh, delegated to the planning department has authority to name streets in a county um, that are county-owned streets and that are not um, 
within the independent municipalities. So that is a function within one of our divisions to manage that process. And so when we got this request, uh, our department and the parks department worked together uh, combining our historic preservation researchers um, and staff to do that research. And again, this was in the middle of the, the pandemic, the height of the pandemic. They did a lot of research that they were able to conduct online because at that time, uh, in-person facilities were still closed. But uh, collectively, they identified, um, I should have the numbers on the top of my head. We have a whole presentation about this, but many, many streets in a county that had last name matches to Confederate soldiers um, and to slaveholders in Montgomery County. But in the end, uh, there were three streets that had full name matches uh, to Confederate soldiers. They were nationally known Confederate soldiers. And uh, we then worked with MCDOT to rename those streets. And we also worked with um, the community members who identified those new street names. Those, all three of those streets were in kind of this uh, one area in uh, the Rockville Potomac area. So it, was, it wasn't spread throughout the, um, through, throughout the county. And there actually had been some earlier efforts within that community to look at uh, potentially renaming the streets. So there was already sort of a groundswell of support there. But we held some community engagement. Uh, there's actually a street naming manual um, that was approved through the planning board in previous years that we also use because it has criteria for how you can name streets. And ultimately, we named the three streets after two African-American um, leaders in the county's history, Geneva Mason and um, uh, forgetting the other individual's name because it isn't reflected in its sign here. But it was really important uh, for us to, you know, use this effort not only to take down the names of Confederates, of streets that were named after Confederate soldiers, but also to use this as a way to uplift the county's uh, African-American history as well. Next slide. So with that, that concludes our presentation. And again, you know, I think the, the big takeaway is that, you know, for me, the important thing that we have to do is to make sure that our focus on equity is institutionalized so that it is something that can continue regardless of who is working in the department at any given time. This is very much not only a focus for our department, it is obviously for the county. Uh, equity is a major focus nationally within our profession as well. And so we, we've had some other resources on a national level that we looked at when we were starting this work. Uh, but again, this is something that shows up in a lot of different ways, which hopefully you saw through this presentation. And uh, with that, you know, happy to answer any questions from the board. Uh, Mr. Chair, um, if I may, uh, Matthew Mills, um, I just wanted to add one thing uh, to what Director Stern stated about the renaming. There was also, if I remember correctly, a Jeb Stewart trail in the park system. That's that correct. The parks department had the unilateral authority to rename, which they did as soon as the um, direction came down from the county council, which should not have to go through the otherwise formal process. But I just wanted to make sure that we right. pointed that out as well. Yeah, thank, you. thank you. And if, if, if I don't mind, if you don't mind, 
William Dove was the other individual uh, for whom we renamed um, those streets. That was back in 2021 when we renamed those three streets. Geneva Mason uh, was a community leader um, in the Scotland community, and the particularly during the late 60s, during the time when that community was dealing with urban renewal. William Dove was a formerly enslaved African-American man who was one of the founders of the Scotland community. And so for that renaming event, we had a lot of family members from those two individuals who were there as well. So it was a wonderful event. That's, that's really, really nice. The, any of the commissioners have any comments or questions? I have a question. I'm really interested to learn about the process of the naming process. I do not know if there is something or a website or a procedure that you could just share with us. Sure. That how we decide on naming of a street. Is it done by development or is it done by the you know, staff? How the names are decided and what is the process of changing the name? And who are the people that make the decision what name would be put for the roads or projects? Uh, if you could share that with us, thank you. Sure. So we do have a street naming manual, which the planning board approved again a few years ago. Um, it's actually for streets and for park facilities, but specifically for streets, there are there are specific criteria to keep in mind as you identify street names. Uh, developers can submit for street names. Uh, residents can request uh, street name changes. So that manual does go into all those details. Um, for that particular effort, for that street renaming effort, um, because it was particularly focused on uh, uh, removing the names of Confederate soldiers from those streets, uh, we initiated that process. And at the end of the day, it's the planning director who has the delegated authority from the board because it's the commission that has the authority to name streets. Um, but for that, because it affected um, you know, it was three streets in one particular community. We decided to do community engagement to make sure that we worked with the community to identify new street names. This wasn't something that the community members had already identified a street name uh, for that. So we applied a somewhat different process for that. Uh, but even for that, we were guided by the criteria and the street naming manual. Um, and one thing we have to do is also run it by fire and rescue because they need to make sure that it won't, it will be a street name that they can easily find if there's an emergency. Um, it isn't similar to another name, but we can share all that information um, to the board so you have that. Is it the final authority, the final decision making content to the planning board as is an open meeting uh, for, or is it that made, uh, the only question I have is that what is I understand you do public participation, uh, but does the public have the, uh, this opportunity to come in front of planning board if they don't have issues with the naming that we can hear? And, or is it just delegated to the department um, regardless of if some people agree or disagree? This is a delegated uh, decision to the planning director, so it is essentially an administrative process. None of the street names come to the board for approval. Even when our department uh, did the street renaming for those three, three streets in response to the county council's process, we informed the board of here's the outcome of this effort, but we did not. This wasn't something that required the board's decision. It's not a public hearing process. Again, for that particular instance, we did some community engagement because it was the specific circumstances around that particular uh, street renaming, but it is essentially an administrative process. 
Thank you. Um, Commissioner Bartley, any comments or questions? Oh, thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed the presentation. It was um, actually encouraging. Um, I like to reflect on the conversation I had with County Executive Mark Elrich prior to his approval of me being appointed to the board. And, and I don't know what the slide number is, whether or not it was slide number one or number two, but it showed the demographic change from Montgomery County in the 60s and to the point of where we are. Um, and I think at one time the county was 96% white, yeah, 1960, 96% white. And today it's 40.6% um, uh, white, and then the, uh, the, the dominant minority group is no longer African-Americans. And in my conversation with Mark Elridge, he pointed out how Montgomery County has been a success because the increase in minority um, minority uh, population, uh, they sent minorities in politically appointed positions and elected positions. And so when we're looking at equity and inclusion, um, is it, has it not been a success what Montgomery County has already implemented and achieved? And if it's not a success, why not? And then finally, um, what would be the overall end goal with regards to this equity push would it be to further reduce um further increase the the minority population and reduce the caucasian population so i just i just find it interesting that we still have this push when it has been a success is there going to be a push to like maintain status quo or increase certain groups so so um that'd be a, be be my my own insight thanks I think it's important to distinguish, um, you know, you can have a community that may be, to use the term, I don't particularly, not crazy about this term because I think it's kind of awkward, but sort of major, majority minority. Um, however, if those residents do not have equitable access to jobs, to education, to community, uh, community amenities, you know, good income levels, you still have inequity. So you can have sort of on a numbers side, it could look balanced um, in terms of uh, having a diverse community, but that really is only part of the picture. It's really about what is the quality of life for those residents um, and whether or not that is actually equitable. And so I think our focus is particularly on the latter part, acknowledging that you know, sort of regardless of what else is happening in this county, the county has become more racially and ethnically diverse, but we still have inequities in terms of quality of life amongst our residents. And so that's why we are applying all these different strategies um, and recommendations in our master plans within the planning department's purview and the planning board's purview of how we can affect um, change in the community. Um, but to me, that's really what the focus needs to be. So, you know, Commissioner Bartley, you can certainly have, you know, additional um, uh, represent diverse representation and elected leadership, et cetera. But at the end of the day, is really looking at the actual outcomes for the residents. That's where I think we really need to focus on. And that is uh, certainly what our focus is on. That's what the focus is for the county's racial equity law. There are requirements in that law for county agencies in terms of how they make decisions on their programs and funding for different public investments. Uh, and so, you know, with that, to me, I don't really see sort of one hard and fast 
sort of end goal. It's really you have to keep a close eye on a lot of these different um, indicators and qual you know quality of life indicators in order to see are all these different um, strategies and interventions actually moving the needle, and if not, what else needs to happen. But at the same time, again, the other thing I wanted to mention is what I said earlier, is that you also have to make sure that whatever decisions that are being made, whether they're land use decisions or other types of decisions, let's just say within the, the realm of public, of the public sector, doesn't also create new inequities that <laughs> residents will be dealing with in the future. So it's you have to kind of keep all of those things in mind. Great, great. Thank, thank you so much. I thought I, I do have another follow up. I do have another follow up question. Um, there was a there was a slide that talked about the low income population decline and high income population increasing in certain areas. Is that a sign of success of how low income people have changed their status and their course, or is it something else? And and then the other thing I like to point out is that racial covenants are no longer enforceable um, throughout the United States, let alone the county, and any minority person can live where they choose to live in the county, and, and nobody can stop them. That's so, correct. Um, That's that, correct. Yeah. So um, I, we, I know we have to go on to the next item, but are there any other quick comments okay. here? Yeah. Can I jump on real? I, I just wanted to, so we're, as we're moving into talk, we're going to talk about at Thrive, and as we move into implementing Thrive, um, I think it was, I think the presentation was good, and I think the information, you know, <clears throat> focusing on the master plans in the communities, but a lot of those communities developed due to structural inequities. Like there, there's reasons that the, the the communities and the neighborhoods are the way they, they, they are when we're, you know, going in there and using the equity lenses and the equity focus. Um, as we move on to sort of implementing countywide, I really liked the, the data on sort of the inclusive growth, displacement, things like that. I think that was good. But can you talk maybe a little bit more about how we're, how we're looking at sort of the, the countywide application of the sort of equity focus and equity lenses as we sort of move to implementing the, the general plan? Sure. I will point to one specific example, the countywide pedestrian master plan, which the board saw more, more recently. And in fact, there was a slide that Carrie went over earlier that looked at, um, that that used the equity focus areas map as a way to, um, to look at uh, whether or not those areas were particularly vulnerable to pedestrian crashes. And that data showed that, yes, that is the case. So that is one way in which we can apply um, this particular focus using data on a countywide level. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly, um, you know, use that in, in other, uh, in other uh, ways as well. And, and when you see the Community Equity Index, you will see some other ways that, you, you know, you can overlay a lot of different yeah. data once you have this data related to equity. There's, it becomes much easier to look at a broader um, geographic scale where there may be some particular inequities um, yeah. in different parts of the county. Thank you. Commissioner Linden, you had a question. Yeah, thanks. And I'll, I'll keep this uh, a brief as well. Um, I, I also thought this was a great presentation. Um, thank you for all the context and the history. And congrats to your team for really rich, comprehensive analysis. I thought that the presentation and the way that you cut the data and show these and, and, and summarize in different ways was, was really helpful um, and also informative for all the planning processes as you talked about. Um, Specifically with the the the, rate, the, um, the mapping segregation project, and of course, Commissioner Bartley, uh, you're correct that um, these are no longer enforceable. Um, I'm I'm curious now that we have those covenants, though, where we've identified many covenants throughout the county, or at least down county. That seems like such a rich data source, and and of course, covenants can can also include other prescriptive 
or restrictive um, components um, other than kind of the, the, the unenforceable elements today. And I'm, I'm wondering if your team has any plans to do further analysis on those covenants, particularly as we implement Thrive 2050, um, because we've seen in other communities where they've, they've tried to make um, policy or zoning or regulation changes, um, broadly speaking, but sometimes the existence of neighborhood-wide or, 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 or larger areas than that covenants can kind of inhibit the, the implementation of policy coming down at a higher level. Um, so I'm just curious if, if your team has any other plans to do analysis on, on those covenants. I will start. Um, I'll maybe mentioned, uh, maybe Kara, you can sp speak in a little bit more detail. So as part of the mapping segregation project phase one, which is what we completed focusing on the down county area, once we did the historical research, which you saw through the map, we also looked at the question that came up, you know, what does this mean for today? Did this impact the way uh, those communities? And does, did that impact who lives in those communities now? And the short answer is, it's very, it's, that's not an easy question to answer. And there's a lot of different factors that, that uh, inform who lives in those neighborhoods now. The fact that there was a racially restrictive covenant, say in the 1940s or 1950s, as Commissioner Bartley noted, they aren't legally enforceable anyway. And there are a lot of different factors that impact, you know, uh, who lives in particular communities that have happened over the, the last number of decades. Um, but in terms of your specific question, so that was sort of one way in which we said, okay, now we have this information, sort of, so what? Um, but uh, the other piece is we actually had requested for our FY24 budget um, some funding to do additional research um, outside of Down County and other parts of the county to see if these covenants existed. We did not get that funding, so we will you know, continue to see if there are other opportunities in the future to do that additional, additional research. Um, but we do know that there are some covenants that are more uh, restrictive in terms of what types of property, uh, or what types of housing can go on property. So that is something that we are aware of. And um, as you will see over the coming months, we have uh, quite a number of housing-related initiatives um, to look at how we can expand housing choices um, throughout the county. But if there are um, covenants, HOA covenants that, that says you can only have, say, a detached single-family home. That's sort of a whole kind of separate matter altogether. Um, but th those are, you know, those types of covenants, we are aware that they do exist in certain parts of the county. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, very, very informative. And I especially liked, uh, you know, how you do in com community engagement, you know, so, so to give us some comfort level that you we knew it, but just the, the data shows that you're reaching out to in many different ways to to the residents uh, before we make decisions about what's going on, land use planning. So thank you. Uh, so we're going to, do we need to take a break now? Or are we, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll st come back with our last item, Thrive Montgomery 2050. Thank you.
Thank you. We're on our last item, item number seven, Thrive Montgomery 2050 briefing. So, uh, can We'd love to have staff uh, give us this briefing. Thank you. Good morning. For the record, Khalid Afzal with the director's office. And also, uh, I'll be doing this presentation with Carrie McCarthy, uh, Chief Research Division. <clears throat> So Thrive Montgomery 2050 general plan for the county, uh, what's Thrive Montgomery 2050? It's an update to the general plan, which was last updated in 1969. It doesn't mean that it's not been updated. Um, there was confusion in the beginning that, oh, we have not done anything. But the way the structure is in Montgomery County and the state law, general plan is the only plan, so to speak. Legally, all the other sector plans, master plans, function plans are an amendment to the general plan. So every time you do a sector plan, master plan, functional plan, you're updating your general plan also. So it's, it's been updated, but there was no one place where you can see the, the result of what was it. Was, you have to look at all these layers. <clears throat> uh, basically, it's a, again, as a general plan, long-range vision for the future of growth of Montgomery County, uh, it does not change zoning in any neighborhood. Although, of course, we know that its recommendations when implemented through subsequent master plans, um, zoning ordinances change everything, that yes, we expect the zoning will change, but it does not go in like master plan because, again, it's a high-level plan. It, it does that. Uh, it will help guide as a policy document uh, land use policies for land use, transportation, environment, parks, and all the land use-related matters. Planning for infrastructure, community amenities, private developments, and of course, future master plans. Now, it's um, the the reason we put this slide here is because there was a lot of confusion when we're doing that. That general plan doesn't it doesn't talk about specific policies. It doesn't bring out any actionable items. It doesn't say a lot of things that people can see about where zoning and changes. And this is an example we put that Montgomery, Montgomery County's general plan is different in, in a way from many other smaller jurisdictions uh, where general plan is the only document and only master plan, so to speak. And it, it's updated on a regular basis. It's like our master plans, smaller jurisdictions. So general plan has all the details. Montgomery County general plan has been different from its very beginning in the 1964 and 69 master plans were more overall arch, overarching vision documents, and the subsequent actionable items, zoning changes were more detailed in the local master plans. The example for that is Howard County Master Plan, which is required by law to be updated every 10 years. It has all the details. It looks, feels more like our master plan or sector plan. Only recently, they've started doing individual sector plans. For example, they're, they're downtown, they've done that. So that's one difference between Montgomery County's general plan and some of other jurisdictions. Frederick County master plan, again, is more like Montgomery County's. It's more general. They have just recently updated also, so it doesn't. And in this case, what this slide is showing you is that it, as, as a policy document, it cannot tell you what will happen in 10 years or five years, what not or how. It just lays out these guidelines and policies, and then as we go along, we implement those things. 1969 general plan had three major recommendations. For example, it talked about increasing affordable housing. 
one of the results of that recommendation was in 1973, we created the MPDU law, moderately priced dwelling unit law. Uh, same thing, the 64 and 69 plan talked about uh, timely implementation of infrastructure. It did not talk about growth policies. It did not say specifically have an adequate public facilities ordinance, which was created in 1973. Uh, again, protecting of farmland was just a recommendation in the general plan. Uh, the first, what we call TDR program, transfer of development rights, which is the main mechanism for implementing um, protection of ag reserve, was created in 1980. And with that, the following year, the ag reserve plan was created. So sometimes it takes a long time for some of these policies to be implemented into actionable items. In terms of how general plan sits with the rest of the, the structure of all these planning mechanism and everything, general plan is the highest level view of the Montgomery County. It's very general, let's say, you know, to take a 30,000 view. It take, looks at the entire county. It doesn't look at individual neighborhoods or even you know, streets or places or something. Functional plans are a little lower at, in terms of from what distance they see. Functional plans talk about specific elements or topics or maybe a large portion of the county. So they're a little more detailed and then they go into the recommendations that are more implementable. Master plans, sector plans, geographically you come down a little bit more, you're looking at, again, neighborhoods, roads, facilities, community facilities, amenities, infrastructure and everything. After that, the next three layers, again, in our regulatory process, sketch plan, premium plan, and site plan, that's where the implementation happens. You are at the ground level. Sketch plan gives you a concept. Preliminary plan gives you how generally the property is divided or what the parameters of the entitlements is. But uh, again, you come down to the site plan, you are seeing actually you know, every finish, every kind of tree where it's planted, where the open space is and everything. So that's how it works. Uh, another way to think about that is about how the, in this hierarchy, what the general plan role is. Think of it as the operating system, your Windows 95, Windows 98. It puts an overall you know, frame, framework on it. All of your other you know, Word, PowerPoint, GIS, everything else, they operate within that framework. They can be updated as, as time goes on. Uh, but the general the operating system doesn't change anything. Same thing as, as the general plan is now approved, all the other master plans and sector plans will continue to operate the way they are as they're updated. For example, the, uh, the Briggs-Cheney master plan, Tacoma master plan, they will go into more detail and amend the general plan in terms of providing more detail for those specific areas, staying within the policy recommendations of the general plan. Can I ask you a question sure. yeah. specifically for that? Um, what happens that we are not, uh, because we have now the thrive that is changing a lot of stuff that it cannot be implemented until a master plan done. So that puts us, the planning department and us, in sort of a time crunch to upgrade a lot of master plan that may not be even due now, uh, and it may be, and you know, we don't have the resources. For example, you get a sketch plan or a preliminary plan in an area that uh, you don't have a plan to do an area uh, or functional master plan. 
So the zoning is still based on the old zoning while we want to do something totally different. Uh, how do we uh, look at those uh, sketch plans that they come based on the general plan, but we don't want to go based on general plan. We want to go based on tribe. So are we going to tell them you cannot do it or ask them to ask for a zoning request, a, ch a conditional change of the zoning? So I'll start, to, I'll start to answer that question. In a hierarchy of plans, uh, Thrive, because it's a general plan, again, has is, is at the top of the heap, so to speak, in terms of policy direction. I think with regards to specific zoning matters, because again, Thrive doesn't change zoning, um, there are opportunities to, to look at a, um, uh, a request to change the zoning itself for a site, which will be its own process. And if there is policy within Thrive that would support that change in the zoning, that obviously can be used as part of the justification. Um, but with regards to, say, a master plan and a guidance in a master plan, when we review applications, we're looking at the guidance from Thrive, the guidance in a master plan, as well as you know zoning and, and other policy direction, like the complete streets design guideline. But to go back to sort of your first statement, we are actually already implementing Thrive right now. Um, so we are not sort of held up in terms of implementing it, even in parts of the county where there's a master plan that was done, say, 15 years ago. We, we can still apply the, the guidance from Thrive right now. Um, and if there are opportunities, again, to look at maybe updating the zoning, then that's an additional process that, that can be explored to help further that. Uh, if the zoning for the sketch plan does not match with what it is in the current old max master plan, then there is a process that we, um, to make the sketch plan to go in according to you know our tribe, then probably they need to do the zoning, and then they could request for that. Yeah. I will explain it this way, that if you look at the general plan, you will not see that level of detail in any policy recommendation that will tell you this sketch plan or this site or this something is not correct zoning because again it doesn't even come down to that level it's very high level we specifically did that and the way it happens is we receive a de development application sketch plan staff looks at it the first step for staff is to go to the general plan see what's the recommendation in the general plan they will see that there's nothing about this property the general plan doesn't talk about any specific property the next step is go to the local area master plan a functional master plan master plan of highways, pedestrian master plan, but again, pedestrian master plan and functional master plans don't talk about specific zoning. Most of them talks about, or talk about infrastructure. Master plan of highways, BRT, pedestrian master plans. Zoning is almost always talked about in the master plan, local master plan or sector plans. So that's where the staff will look at it. This sketch plan is coming in under CR2. What does the master plan say? Master plan says, most master plan recommendations for zoning changes are implemented right after the master plan is passed through something called sectional map amendment, which changes the zoning map to be consistent with the master or sector plan. So by the time the development application comes in, the zoning is all set according to the local area master plan for that area. Now there is a process, of course, sometimes there are floating zones or there is ability for the applicant to apply for zoning change, also recommended in the master plan or not. So there's no conflict in terms of our processing of how the hierarchy of plans works. 
in terms of going. And we'll talk more about implementation of the general plan, about what are the mechanisms. Zoning and master plan is only one of them. There are others that we will talk about that. Uh, just briefly about why we decided to um, look at the general plan. Uh, it's been, like we said, you know, 50 plus years. There have been a lot of changes. We were looking at about another 200,000 people to be added to the projected to be added to the county by 2045, 2050, that kind of time frame. And at the same time, on the left-hand side, you see some of these major considerations, demographic shifts, climate change, technological innovations, uh, economic disruptions, lifestyle changes, that all of that, that we thought it was a good time, especially at the time that we knew that the county, as we know, has run out of what we call green fields. You know, that phase, that whole phase of county development and growth has come to an end, and now we are getting into a more of an infantry development. Uh, so we wanted to step back and look at it, take a comprehensive look at all with everything, and say, are we in the right track? You know, should we, do we need any fine-tuning? Do we need any change or something? So that was the reason for taking this um, initiative. Uh, we talked about some of the issues here that we already saw in the previous presentation. Thrive identifies three key objectives, economic competitiveness, racial equity, social justice, environmental health and resilience. And this is at the same time we, when, as you saw in the previous presentation, the department started looking at equity and planning. We also started to explore the question of whether we should be doing general plan at this time. Uh, and before launching the project and officially announcing it, we wanted to get internally a handle on how should we approach this thing. It's a huge undertaking. It's a vast project. It's op it opens up everything. So before we getting into it, we didn't want to get tangled up in every issue. You know, traffic is bad, housing is bad, you know, economy is bad, this flooding is bad here or something. We said we need to step back and look at it and say, have some kind of framework for us to say how we approach this thing. We hired a consultant, worked with some internal and external experts, uh, conducted a series of workshops with them to say, what's the framework? How should we look at it? And these three things came up that they, because they impact every other issue, especially from our point of view, from land use point of view. Uh, there was a question about transportation or traffic. We said, yeah, but, you know, there are so many things, again, housing, you know, everything. So this is the framework we call three pillars. They permeate and influence almost every chapter, every recommendation in the plan. And you will see that this is our guiding, guiding lights for this. Um, how Thrive is structured. Um, these are the chapters for starting with introduction. And then the next three chapters, economic competitiveness, racial equity, social justice, environment, health, and resilience. Again, the first three chapters, they don't have specific policy recommendations. They set the overall stage. Introduction talks about, again, why we need to update the general plan, what is a general plan, what's the role of the general plan, um, and how, would it, how will it impact you know, the policy going forward. Economic competitiveness, these three chapters, set up the stage for these three topics to be discussed in all the actual subsequent six chapters. The, the equity portion, I would say again, is Commissioner Bartlett's question about we are a very diverse county. 
So how does that reflect into our plans or something? What we discovered in this exercise of these first three pillars was that we are a very diverse county in terms of averages. But when it comes to distribution of these facilities and everything of land use, we are becoming more and more geographically segregated into different communities. And that is a huge land use challenge. Uh, because again, concentration of poverty is a, is a huge challenge. It has ramifications that were difficult to address and everything. So from land use point of view, our challenge is that yes, we are very diverse, but we have to make our land use as diverse on average, not have just averages, but every community should have uh, the similar kind of access to opportunities, to, to facilities, to amenities. Uh, look at the school boundaries, because that becomes every time there is a you know, question about school boundaries and where amenities are, what the performance is, the difference are. So, uh, and that's the study that uh, Carrie talked about, the uh, neighborhood change that also talks about that in Montgomery County, instead of displacement, concentration of poverty is a bigger challenge that we should keep an eye on going forward from our land use point of view or land use planning. Uh, the next three chapters, Compact Growth, Complete Communities, and Design Arts and Culture, they are, again, starting at a big picture, Compact Growth um, talks about countywide pattern of growth and land use and how should it be doing. I mean, we talked about the 64 general plan talks about wedges and corridors. Are we still staying with that overall concept for the county? Or should we fine tune that or address that indifferently? Complete Communities, a little bit more detail at the neighborhood scale, we talk about neighborhoods and individual areas in the county. And design arts and culture going down to the design of the infrastructure, design of the sites, design of the neighborhoods, a little more detail. And the next three chapters, transportation and the communication network, housing for all, and parks and recreation, go into further detail about how the previous three chapters, compact growth, complete communities, and design arts and culture, get actually implemented through these what we call your actual actionable item mechanisms, transportation, housing, and parks, will be done. And the last one in conclusion, which is basically how the implementation of this will happen. And at this point, I think I'll hand it over to Carrie for... Good morning, uh, Carrie McCarthy, for the record, Director of Research and Strategic Projects. Um, as one of the three major pillars of the plan, you know, economic competitiveness is very important um, to the department of the county. Um, you know, there's been a sense the past 20 years that the county's economic growth has been flat, um, and we have not been performing as well as we have done historically. You know, particularly relative to some of our regional peers. Um, you know, that said, we are still a very wealthy county, still a very highly educated county, but you know, we used to be in the top 10 in the United States in terms of household income, and now. We're in the top 20. Um, similarly, you know, growth um, of much more lower paying jobs have grown faster than higher paying jobs. Um, and the county was hit pretty hard in the 2010s with sequestration. There was sort of a, a double dip 
recession um, after the 2008 financial crisis um, when Congress you know, cut federal spending. Um, so all of those have sort of created a drag on the economy. Um, you know, the planning department's role um, in supporting economic development in the county is really to create great places. Um, we're not the business attraction agency that's led by MCDC. Um, you know, the school system is responsible for education. Um, and so we really wanted this plan to focus on, you know, how can we continue to create create great places where companies want to locate, where people want to live. Um, and so the plan focuses on our strengths. Um, you know, we are a leader in the hospitality and life sciences. Um, you know, particularly um, life sciences was hot before the pandemic. Now it's, um, you know, really seen some acceleration. Um, we have these major federal government anchors and campuses with NIH, FDA, DOE, NIST, and then um, Walter Reed, Bethesda Naval. Um, and we maintain a, a very highly educated workforce. Um, so the plan thinks about how do we take all those assets and continue to build on those assets um, to create high quality places um, of housing that's affordable at a range of price points. Um, and also, um, how do we promote our uh, tie to the region, um, both from an economic and transportation side? Next slide. Um, we covered equity a lot in the last session, so I don't need to see much. But again, you know, even before um, the county passed its legislation, um, we really felt like equity needed to be an important part of Thrive um, 2050, Thrive McGonagall 2050, um, to focus on the county's changing demographics and population. Next slide. Um, again, this is the slide from last presentation. I put it in again to emphasize its importance. Um, and another map we can show you all sometime um, that's really interesting is we actually do map languages spoken at home. Um, and for communities that have a high percentage of non-native English speech speakers, what those languages are. Um, and that's used in a lot of the outreach as we figure out what um, translations needs are for different communities. Um, so again, in all of our work, we're really thinking about um, both countywide and what the conditions are, and then what are the different populations characteristics at the community level. Um, and then the kind of third core introductory chapter um, is environmental health and resilience. Um, a core foundational part of planning is maintaining and protecting the environment. Um, and in Montgomery County, you know, it's pretty special that we both have the agricultural reserve that protects a third of the county's area and produces environmental benefits such as watershed protection, habitat protection, et cetera. Um, you know, we know we need to grow, but we know we also need to protect the environment. So a lot of the policies in terms of having corridor focused growth, compact growth um, can help us preserve more land um, you know, for environmental purposes. Um, and then climate change, you know, the, the biggest threat to uh, the country and the world right now. I'll go on to the next slide, please. Um, we really thought a lot about that with the plans and that we one of the key ways to address climate change is to change our land use patterns so that we use less space, um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions from transportation and buildings, um, and provide alternatives um, to protecting the environment. So this plan works a lot with a very aggressive climate change, um, climate action plan um, that was developed by the chief climate officer, DEP, and the county government agencies um, kind of around the same time as Thrive. So it was a good chance for us to um, work with them. And then we're theirs is a shorter term plan. Um, so they have sort of quarterly targets and um, they do regular interagency meetings. Um, so it's been a, a good way for us to continue to work with them on the implementation of CAP. 
Um, and actually, one more thing about one more thing about CAP, and it also relates to the economic development plans, because you know, as there's so many plans, both in our department and the MCDC as an economic development plan, and so rather than just repeat the language of these plans in Thrive and have it all be very redundant, um, a lot of Thrive just references these other plans, and it leaves open the flexibility that you know, Thrive is a 30-year plan. Um, most of the other plans will be updated more frequently, um, but the references can persist in a way that provides flexibility over time. The next chapter is Compact Growth. Uh, is basically, as the title says, Corridor-Focused Development. Um, it focuses future growth along corridors. Its main concept is infinite development, transit accessibility, more efficient land of, uh, use of land, um, resulting in uh, reduced infrastructure costs, focusing on sustainable development. And again, it's not just for the cities. It doesn't have to be, compact growth doesn't have to be high density. It is just that, as I said, we are running out of land. We are coming back to the infinite development. In a way, we don't have any other option than to start uh, adding some density in appropriate places. This just talks about where the density should be. It gives you an overall concept for the county um, and how to do compact growth without having to have the same kind of thing everywhere. Yes, we have been doing, Montgomery County has been doing compact growth for a long time. It's been ahead of other places in a way that we started our central business district zoning and development in the late 80s, early to late 80s. So that's why in some way you will see it's more of a fine tuning general plan of the current because, because we already have been doing mixed use in some ways that you will not see a big change because we've already been on that path for a long time. It just solidifies and produces a, a rationale for that we don't have to debate of every master plan and sector plan that we are doing compact growth. It just brings a consensus that, yes, that's where we were going to go in the future. Um, this is, again, a history of how the, the vision of growth has changed. Uh, on the upper left-hand side, 1964 general plan, you'll see there's one corridor I-270 going, I don't know if you can see my um, cursor here, going here. And as this was the original plan with all the corridors for the entire region, I'm just cut out the Montgomery County portion. On this side to the right, lower right-hand corner, this is the I-95 corridor. And there's a little bit of blob of that corridor development area. The 1993 plan, as you can see, has taken out basically the 95 corridor area out of that, it just, so that that concept will give you um, focus more on I-270 corridor and just reorganize the wedges and corridors into suburban layer and, you know, inner layer and urban layers. On the right-hand side is where the Thrive Montgomery's 2050s proposed growth corridor concept, growth concept, the future is. It takes into where we are today and, you know, kind of crystallizes how we should be going, giving the corridors a little more definition. This is what it looks like. Uh, in terms of ag reserves, suburban, and other layers, it creates three tiers, starting with the rural and ag reserve on the outer layer. Then what we call the, the, the core area is the, the corridor-focused growth that basically covers the poorer part of the county that most developed, that has the most infrastructure, that has the most amenities, 
that has the most jobs and housing and everything. And then you have limited growth areas that are you know, between the two layers, mostly what we call suburban areas, single family housing with local amenities and places. It also gives you, uh, it's, it's not a comprehensive list, but suggested list of uh, what we call centers of activity uh, divided into four categories, large centers, medium centers, smaller centers, and village and neighborhood centers. And that you'll see in the next chapter where we talked about complete communities and trying to create compact growth, give it some local character. It should not be the same everywhere, you know. And again, the, the, the Thrive talks about even with large, within large centers, there will be variety. You know, Wheaton will not be the same as Single Spring, Silver Spring, or Bethesda and everything else. And we wanted to keep that, the, the opportunity, and especially emphasize that, yes, they should be uh, separate. And that task about how to define the character individually for each of these will be done in the local area master and sector plan work that will be done in the future as, as, as each community comes up. And again, the plan talks about that this is not a definitive list. It's just a suggested list. Even with the corridors uh, where they are, they, the local area master plan can, for, for example, in, add a new node or community center in the area if they think that's appropriate or define one differently than maybe in the, in the general plan. Uh, just to give you an idea that its general plan is not a wholesale replacement of anything, if you take the previous concept and take those boundaries of those three tier areas and overlap on our current zoning map, it pretty much you know, tracks where the density and development and level of activity and all of that is. It's not, it's not a change, it's more of a fine tuning of where we are today. Because all of those buildings, all of those places are already there. Our task is to make them more accessible, more walkable, as to the places that Carrie talked about will attract more employers and make better places. Uh, the next chapter is complete communities. Again, it talks about at the neighborhood level, um, talks about mix of housing types and sizes, housing near jobs, retail, and services. Mix of uses, housing, retail, and businesses is very important. Again, variation in size, scale, due to local type of community. Again, not a cookie cutter approach. It talks about how they should be defined in more detail in their local area master plans as to how they should grow, what kind of character, what kind of size, what kind of scale, what kind of density. Uh, and that's, again, it will influence, as you talked about, if there are zoning changes, each one might be tailored to the local community's needs. And it talks, there is also uh, this chapter, the idea of complete communities, is supported by 15-minute living. Just a concept in terms of when we are thinking about these complete communities, more and more we want to talk about uh, reducing our dependency on car for everything, making them more walkable. Um, not to say that every place in the county will become 15-minute walkable. We know it's not possible. Um, and that's not the idea. But even when we can, wherever, for example, if there's a local shopping center, even you know, in Sandy Spring or something, and there's an opportunity to include some housing in there, the local plan can decide that, yes, you can have shopping center plus some housing, maybe some affordable housing, give more people an opportunity to 
to move more walkable within 15 minutes. And 15 minutes, again, is a conceptual thing. It can be 10 minutes, it can be 20 minutes. It's not a rigid guide here. Uh, this chapter also talks about, um, you know, different scales of different communities. Um, again, it doesn't have to be, you know, high-density transit or everything else. Uh, complete communities can be even a small coffee shop, local grocery store, something else can be the center of the community where you can have some kind of a, a node of activity. The next chapter is design, arts, and culture. Um, all of the work that actually gets done for the previous two chapters from compact growth and complete communities, when it comes down to um, looking at actual development and everything, design starts to play the role about not only buildings and sites, but also our infrastructure, our amenities, about where we place them, how we locate them. And this chapter gives you a lot of guidance about how we go about that. It also emphasizes the importance of, again, equity and culture uh, and some, some ways to keep in mind that when we're designing these, design influences equity, design influences walkability, design influences access to opportunities, and all of these things that we talked about that contribute to what Thrive wants to achieve is the quality of life that we want here. Um, again, from a design point of view, this is an example that we use that Pike and Roll used to be a huge, big, all paved area. Um, and density is not a bad thing if it's used in the right places. We want to use it in the right places. It has created not only a community, a walkable place, and everything else, but also environmental impact and benefit is huge. 77%, just right up to the top of it, 77% runoff reduction. Uh, another idea that design uh, chapter talks about compatibility, that we should define going forward compatibility in a way that it's more predictable for both the development community and local residents to see what's needed, especially since we are going to be going into more infill and development, and these challenges will be more and more about coming up as to what's compatible with existing community that's existing um, development that's there. Uh, there's a scale question, you know, starting on the left from very small single-family house all the way to residential, and they need to be discussed in the local master plan concept, most planned development, as to, especially when you're talking about any rezoning or any development projects coming in, that that the compatibility issue should be addressed. And I think the tribe also talks about it's also an equity issue, so that we are not blinded by the fact that, you know, just because compatibility is one question, we are not pushing equity aside. We're not considering that because it does have impact on what kind of housing we can provide in what kind of places. And what is the real impact going forward? Um, you know, is it the same as we were doing greenfield development because 300-acre single-family development didn't have that question, but now we may be facing those questions more and more. And transportation? Um, in all the chapters of Thrive, uh, we demonstrate how the recommendations relate to the three key pillars of economic competitiveness, environment, and equity. 
Um, and a key shift, transportation, we need a safe, efficient network for people to get where they need to go across the county to be economically competitive. Um, we need to provide transit um, in a way that's equitable and ensuring people of different income levels and races have access to the same levels of transit service um, based on where they live. Um, and then it also, you know, um, the transportation modes need to help protect the environment. Um, and so in the chapters of Thrive, we put little EN, um, ECEQs next to the specific recommendations that relate to the different areas. Um, the transportation communication network chapter really seeks to change the earlier planning paradigm that put cars first. Um, where this, our plan now balances cars with transit, with walking, biking, and rolling recommendations um, to promote this interconnected system um, that provides safe options um, and includes aspects of our new, newer Vision Zero policies um, and efficient options so that people can um, get to jobs and get where they need to go. Next slide. Um, you know, this, this section also um, provides a little bit of a regional perspective. You know, our county doesn't exist in a bubble. We need to connect to the, Tyson's has a strong job base, downtown DC. Um, and so the consideration of the policy recommendations are ensuring that our network fits into the regional network. Um, this chapter also in the, the theme of network has some recommendations around communications and internet and providing broadband access to places that currently don't have it. Housing, um, again, housing is really important for economic development. If people can't find an affordable place to live, they're not going to want to move here. Companies are not going to want to locate here. Um, and so our housing chapter emphasizes, next slide, um, that we really need um, more housing of all types in all places. Um, we have not had housing production at a level um, to meet demand for quite some time. And one of the challenges of our um, the demographic conditions in our county, we have an aging population, people who've been here for a long time, and we have a um, percentage of the population that's over housed. Um, and that's great, but that also hasn't, it's great for people to stay in their homes and live here for a long time, but it also, we have a challenge in creating family-sized units for people who are younger, who want to move here, who want to have families. Um, and so that's another reason why our housing chapter really um, emphasizes housing of all types. Next chapter, or next slide. And Kerry just wanted to make sure, because I said that the 2022, the building permit was low. Do you have the right permitting information <laughs> from DPS? Because you hear all the things that we have been reading before. Um, so. This is an older slide, so I cannot speak to um, its accuracy. Yeah, um, because it shows it has dropped. And yeah. I know that while I was there, it was not dropped. So you may want to check yeah, to make yeah, sure that is, you have the right numbers. Yeah, that has been a changing... Uh, issue of the week that we are aware of, um, but yeah. 20, 2020 here could be also the result of COVID impacts. It, it looks like this chart doesn't extend actual permits beyond, if I'm reading it right, beyond 2020, but yeah. Yeah, this is from the, we are using the slides for the Thrive document itself, so this is not up to date to the current uh. numbers. <laughs> um. So yeah, so you know, as I've said, the key policies in Thrive are um, to promote the production of more housing of all types, um, plan for a um, range of housing types and sizes, um, and then lastly, to promote racial and ethnic diversity um, and equity in housing in every neighborhood. Um, you know, while last 
the equity presentation, we talked about how diverse the county and how the diversity is spread out. Um, you know, we do have significant challenges in that there are pockets of multifamily housing that have people who are generally lower income, more likely to be people of color. And then we have wide pockets of just single family housing. And those areas are tended to be um, much wealthier and much whiter. And so in terms of providing access to people, um, you know, we really want to diversify the housing stock um, in places where it makes sense, where there's access to transit and jobs and other amenities. Uh, just to add to the last point that housing is emerging to be a key component uh, of land use in terms of uh, equity, but I mean, as Carrie said, housing is an e economic issue. Housing is an environmental issue. Housing, I mean, some of the other jurisdictions have actually defined that it, 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 it affects housing, it affects economic preparedness, it's the environment, in fact, everything else. There was a research paper when we were, as I mentioned, that we were looking at the original first exercise about three big pillars, uh, and that showed that our workplaces, and this is just the United, across the United States, our workplaces are more integrated than housing. We come to work, they're all more integrated. It had a slide about where people go back, come to work, and where people to go back to where they live. So the housing is where, call it segregation, call it concentration, call it you know, inequality issues. And again, housing is where you have access to your schools, access to your opportunities, access to where you go, where you live, the, people, the kind of people you meet. So in that case, housing is, especially from the land use point of view, I mean, equity, yes, there are economic issues that we can't do anything about. You know, minimum wage, yeah, somebody else has to deal with that or something else. From land use point of view, I don't think we're going to be able to really say we have addressed equity if we can't have more diversified and mixed housing everywhere. Because until we do that, all of these other things will not be addressed. I mean, no matter how much transit we provide, buses we provide, if the current segregation that you saw on the maps, that kind of east-west divide, you're still going to have, you know, people moving from one place to the other. We cannot move jobs everywhere to bring to the local community. It's a question of going forward with the master plans. And it's not an easy task. I'm not saying how we do that, but the areas that are not very diverse, you know, more white, more higher income and everything, that's where the challenge is to we produce. We bring more people. We cannot bring more people. All we can do is create through zoning, through our, you know, our mechanism, more diversified housing in those communities and try to attract more market rate housing in other communities where we have more concentration of poverty. So again, it's a, it's a huge challenge, but that's where, from a land use point of view, equity for housing is very important. Can I add something just really quickly? Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director, I didn't introduce myself earlier. Uh, just related to this topic, I um, attended a meeting earlier this week that is uh, was hosted by the Washington Housing Conservancy. They have a a uh, regional kind of housing stakeholder group that I'm a member of, and uh, we met earlier this week. And there was a speaker from um, uh, I'm forgetting the organization, but the focus of the discussion was on housing and health equity, and that housing is a way to further health equity as well and has a direct impact on residents' health, whether the, the stress of not being able to access housing, the stress of having 
of being uh, rent burdened as well, and the way that, uh, you know, happy to, you know, as I'm learning more to share more information um, around that work. But um, uh, it just kind of just emphasizes what Khalid was just talking about, how fundamental housing is for so many other outcomes. And so that's why this whole premise of housing for all is just is so important. Antonia, I just want to add to what you have been saying, because I 100% I agree. The other thing that I think it is in tribe, but uh, maybe we should focus more is food resiliency, because if you're talking about environment, or you're talking about health, bottom line is the food and intake mm -hmm. for people, okay? And, and it's extremely important where you live or how you can get access and the, the type of quality of the produce and material that is available and also affordability of all of those. Uh, uh, because your health comes, in my opinion, first than housing. Because mm -hmm. if you're not healthy, it doesn't matter where you live. That's how I feel about it. So uh, I think that one component, especially now, I, I see that in your presentation you discussed everything. I think we should add and emphasize to uh, food resiliency. That is sustainability of food, that how we could consume it and how we could make it more available to everyone. Now everybody likes organic, but not everybody can afford it. Or everybody likes to go to, uh, to fresh market, but the fresh market right now is extremely expensive and is not make it available for everyone. And, and Thrive does acknowledge yeah. that. Um, and also, you may recall in the Fairland and Briggs Cheney Master Plan, there's some recommendations related to uh, improving food access in community gardens. Um, the parks chapter um, doubles down on the parks shifting emphasis um, to not just being about um, land preservation, but being about promoting activity, um, health, um, and socializing. Next slide. Um, you know, in the past, a lot of the, the parks policies, particularly in urban areas, had parks on the edges as buffers between the single-family neighborhoods. Um, Thrive really promotes um, moving parks to the center um, of districts to, and programming them, which the Parks Department has been doing a lot of, um, to create to ensure the parks can be places of community. Um, you know, we have, you know, there's various literature on, you know, people don't go to church less frequently, um, there's, you know, community falls apart, and so thinking about how can parks um, help promote social capital in neighborhoods. Um, and also health, you know, the key key concerns, um, you know, looking in the equity focus area analysis, we found people that live in those areas um, don't have access to as many, um, we saw the sidewalk data earlier, um, access to trails and other activities. Um, so wanting the parks department to, um, and the park planning to provide opportunities for people to get active. Next slide. Um, and then the conclusion chapter covers implementation. Um, you know, another analogy for our plan is that it's a guidebook, not a roadmap. So, you know, the plan sets out a set of values for the county um, and an overall destination. You know, we want to go to Paris. We want to see some cultural sites. We want to eat some good food. Um, but we don't, you know, decide which restaurant, which museums, et cetera. Those will be done um, through the master and sector plans, the functional plans, um, the CIP, um, the other plans we've mentioned before. 
Um, and it's also to, important to emphasize that um, planning certainly the lead agency, but implementing Thrive will not be possible without partnerships um, with other public agencies, DOT, DEP, MCPS, um, and then um, the private development community. So. Just to add to that is, uh, Commissioner Karoim, you asked about uh, implementation, about you know, whether it's going to be master plan by master plan or not. So there is direct implementation of Thrive, especially through our agency. But as you see here, there's a list of things here. But even for our agency, we have more than one mechanism to do that. Uh, master plans, individual master plans is one way. But it's up to us to decide how we want to do that. Some parts of Thrive will need to be implemented through countywide actions. I mean, one example is that as we were developing Thrive, one of the zoning text amendment proposed by uh, Councilmember Joanna was a zoning text amendment to allow uh, duplexes, triplexes, countywide in certain county zones. Now that would have to be a countywide amendment. That's an implementation. It's up to the council to decide which kind of implementation actions and which ones to take first. But there are certain recommendations that need to be done at countywide. Uh, some infrastructure planning, for example, will have to be done that. But not talked about individual property zoning changes. I mean, you don't have to change individual property zoning to affect zoning change. There's two types of zonings. Change the zone of the property or change the zoning text about what's allowed on that property. And that was the Joando Amendment trying to do to say, allow duplexes in, you know, whatever, and we did the study and, you know, everything. So that's one way to say implementation. The other implementation by other agencies, for example, Kerry talked about climate action plan. Everything climate action plan is doing, when I see that, it's an implementation of Thrive. Because Thrive doesn't say that you have to do this, this, this. Like, it's climate action plan is part of the general plan. Uh, you saw the recently, a recent announcement that the county purchased the a affordable housing, a naturally occurring affordable housing project in Aspen Hill. That action was, okay, this is implementation of Thrive. Thrive doesn't say do this, this, but it talks about preserving naturally affordable housing where appropriate and we should be doing whatever financing mechanism, other things we should be doing that to do that. So that's an implementation of Thrive. Um, I think before this board, or just before this board, we changed the forest conservation law, fine-tuned it to do some things uh, about how trees preservation and everything. That is an implementation of Thrive, because if you look at it, it talks about that. So implementation, yes, there are big action items. Some of the things we talked about, you know, act, um, Acting Director Stern mentioned in her presentation about some of the master plans and other actions and uh, we are looking at, those will all be reflecting in some way Thrive implementation. But there will be more specific implementation that will really be talking about just, for example, if there's a zoning text amendment, that'll become, you know, Thrive implementation. But Thank everything you. else becomes, you know, almost yeah. implementation of Thrive. I totally agree. Um, really good point that you made. Um, also, uh, I think it's very important, the coordination with all the other county agencies. Mm -hmm. I know that we have not this work group for this development review process. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to have a work group for the implementation mm -hmm. of the tribe because this is exactly what we need. Um, this is a blueprint, okay, a way that 
uh, is guiding uh, how we uh, move uh, for the next 20, 30 years. But we are not the implementer. Mm -hmm. Everybody is the implementer. And it would be really good that uh, the coordination goes uh, increase, that we get mm -hmm. all the departments to get a very good understanding of these principles and how we can get together to make it happen. And, and sometimes maybe we also need to reach out to our uh, regional uh, uh, or neighborhood counties uh, to, as what you said in here, that we cannot just grow in, in uh, uh, you know, just in vacuum. We need to grow all together. So uh, that's a principle that hopefully we look into to get everyone to participate. If I can just jump in to help answer that, we actually already do a lot of not just ongoing coordination with multiple agencies, but we have regular standing meetings that we have on a monthly basis. Uh, we have a meeting with um, MCDOT on a wide variety of transportation issues. Uh, we already have the development review, um, the, the, um, the DRC, the development review committee that works with us to review development applications because as Khalid mentioned, the implementation is not just in discrete projects or master plans or capital improvements. It's also in the day-to-day -day decisions in terms of uh, the review of development applications and what types of conditions we will ask for, the agencies will ask for. They're all actually implementing Thrive policies. Um, I also attend a regular uh, interagency directors meeting, and I also participate in a monthly meeting that the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments holds with all of the planning directors throughout the entire region, where we all share all of the work that we're doing and talk about how we can work together to identify regional solutions. Um, so you definitely make a very good point, but I just wanted to let you know that we already have you know, these mechanisms to do that uh, interagency coordination. Another example. Uh, thank you. Yeah, that, that's true. The, the key factor is that when you all attend these specific meetings, all the information shared with everyone. It should come from top down or from down up to be inclusive and everybody involved. And, you know, we have your, through your uh, uh, director report to, you know, planning board, you could even inform us that things that is happening at all the different levels, uh, that we stay informed. Because every decision that we are making when the uh, development review comes in front of us, the more we are informed and the more we are educated about uh, the current event, we can make better decisions. And uh, you know, sometimes I ask questions. It's just that I learn about it and I'd be educated that when another you know, application comes in front of me, I'll be able to make an informed decision. Another example is about implementation that the county DP started about two years ago, what they call a comprehensive flood management plan for the county. It's a huge effort. They just finished the first phase of that, of inventorying existing conditions and everything. And we have been thinking about that too, as you know, during the master plans, uh, sorry, the general plan update, because as we go into, you know, not only the climate change and everything going into infill and redevelopment, many of these older communities, you know, more down county, they were developed when there were no, so to speak, stormwater management controls at part of the regular base. Sometimes it's kind of non-existent. And there are already conflicts and issues, um, changing flooding patterns and everything. And that was one of the things that, you know, at least staff's mind that we have to address that at some point because 
going forward, we'll have to look at that. County DEP started that, their working group. Um, I and Mark Samborski from our um, countywide division are part of that. Huge effort, huge effort. They're gonna come up with a full, so to speak, menu of options for the county executive and the council to see, okay, here is going forward how we address these flooding, manage, flooding issues everywhere. Because the current, even when we look at the property, the current stormwater management does not address quantity. The purpose of current stormwater management regulations is to protect stream valley, stream water quality, how to convey water from a new development all the way to stream to make sure that it's not impacting stream water quality in a, in a huge way or something. Yes, there'll be impact if there's runoff. But it's not, the purpose of that is not to control or completely eliminate flooding on individual property or the adjoining property or something. So the, it's a huge challenge, but the, 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 the proposed flood, uh, comprehensive flood management plan has that task as part of that, and we wanted to make sure that they have, in part of their mission or the goal for their project, that we are Thrive Montgomery going forward, we are going into a different kind of development, more infill and everything, and we need that information, we need that guidance going forward for our master plans and development yeah. projects. Yeah, the quantity is uh, probably uh, taken care of by a storm drainage system. That's why that some is very places, important yes, some that, not, right? yeah, uh, the, a, a good majority of them. Another thing that I think it's really, a, a, in my opinion, is a good idea that you keep track of how do you know that the success has come in? Next so <laughs> we would like you uh, maybe to keep track of all of these development that actually implement Thrive 2050. And okay, you, you have the indicator. <laughs> I thought you were done. You did. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. Go ahead. Please, about how much more do you have? Do you have this say? is the last actually yeah. talking slide. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. I thought that. Was <laughs> <it>. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Thrive has over 80 metrics in the plan, um, which is a lot. Um, and so, this year we're we have our Thrive metrics item in the work program to look at. You know, what are the most meaningful metrics that we should be tracking? Yeah. Um, if we track all 80, you know, you've tracked too many. You're not actually tracking anything. Um, and also, what kind of time period makes sense? Um, but um, to Commissioner Peter Williams' point, you know, there, there was a very big focus on wanting to make sure we were tracking what we were doing and um, regular assessments of progress on the plan. Um, and the other question we'll have to look at is what's the right frequency? It's a long-term plan, so it's not a plan where we can look every quarter and see if we're making progress. We're probably not going to see much um, every year, every other year. Um, is there some variation in which metrics we track when? Um, so yeah, that is a new work program item that we are getting started on. Wonderful. You answered my question. Thank you. Yeah, the so last one, just no, acknowledgments to some of the key staff. This is not the only staff. At some point, we had about 60 people from the department working on it, working. We had a technical advisory committee and outside groups and everything. So I just wanted to thank them all. Um, also, I would also note that this kind of comprehensive plan, if you look at other jurisdictions doing that, can cost anywhere close to a million dollars. We did it all in-house right. entirely, except for one consultant that we had and a couple of small studies that we, we did to support specific topics. Yeah. No, no thank you. This was the, 
I, we all know that Thrive 25th was a great and was a large project, great achievement. We, you know, we were so thankful that you were able to do it, and also thankful that you were able to present this overview this morning. It gives us a great lens in which to to look at projects that come down the pike. So th thank you, Mr. Absol and, and Ms. McCarthy. Thank you. Are there any other comments before we adjourn? Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. That was great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and this is this ends our um, our board session for this morning. Thank you, everyone.